We did hear of children's bones being found in the foundations of buildings when schools were dismantled. We heard stories of babies being buried. I can barely talk about this myself. We heard of children being thrown into furnaces. I always come back to this, uh, not that it's right for anyone, but these were children. These were children. The little ones who've woken up this week in Kamloops, these are children calling out to all of us now. That's Marie Wilson, former commissioner on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. She's our guest today on the Akamema podcast. Dance, Tawal, and welcome to the Akamema podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, a national chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemuk is a Plains Cree word for you all persevere, or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. So on this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And today, we're discussing the recent shocking and heartbreaking discovery of the grave sites of 215 children. They were found on the site of the former Kamloops Indian Residential School, at the Kamloops Sewapmuk First Nation in British Columbia. It is shocking, but not surprising for the thousands of First Nations people who survived the genocide of residential schools, or for those who followed the investigation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission into the residential schools and the report that came out in 2015. Its final report detailed the deaths of thousands of children at residential schools and rightly predicted that there were still many more whose deaths weren't accounted for. So today, we are very grateful to be joined from Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories, Marie Wilson. She was one of the three commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So Marie, a big welcome to our Akamema podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here, Chief. So Marie, what was your reaction last week when you first heard about the discovery of the gravesite at Kamloops? You know, I received this news early in the morning, just as I was waking, and my first physical reaction was just immediately to well up with tears and to uh, sort of sit up and try to take it all in. Um, I immediately went um, as I prepared for my own morning rituals, and and I'm just rattling it here. I, I picked up my shishigun, which was conveyed to me with a particular responsibility by the women of Shisasabi when we held hearings Mm. there back in 2013. And as the one female commissioner, the mother of the group, I was um, given the responsibility and the direction to do all that we could to make sure that the little children were freed and that they were never forgotten and that they knew that we would not stop looking for them. And so um, I held them in that way um, in my in my arms and my next thought as I think any human being in this country would have been was to think of my own children and my own grandchildren um, and to hold them close in my thoughts. But I immediately transported myself to the the heartbreak um, that had to be resounding um, in, in the whole area of, of Kamloops because I remember my very first community event as a commissioner, it, it was before the three commissioners were even functioning as a team, actually. Uh, it mm-hmm. was in the first weeks, August of 2009. The gathering that I went to was in Kamloops. I remember 
being invited to tour the school and to be on the grounds. And I remembered clearly, and it came surging back to me deep in my gut, the feeling that I had at that time, the incredible heaviness that I had there and the weight of that gathering. And at the same time, um, the embrace of the determination that was expressed by the people who had prepared that event with so much love and care and, and hope uh, that we would be able to start shedding light on all of this history. So it was a barrage of feelings on all those levels mm -hmm. as a human being, as a mother, as a grandmother, as a commissioner, and as one in this country who joins in the, in the mourning and the outpouring of grief um, and the expectation that we can and must do much better. Yeah, the the sad part was is that our survivors of the residential school said for many, many years that there was a lot of death and a lot of children missing and not accounted for at these schools. The sad part was that nobody believed them. Nobody believed the survivors. And so now here's the horrific evidence. And right and uh, and all and all week as I've been invited to to comment on this, it's one of the things that I've said is, you know, I reject the word discovery. It is a mm -hmm. validation. It is a validation of what we have been told over and over and over again, what we wrote about in detail, uh, what we articulated particularly and specifically in our calls to action 70 to 75, um, and what we heard um, from our very first national event when there was a minister of the then conservative government sitting in circle with a former chief saying their hope for us is that they would we would be able to find their missing relative. The issue of missing children was raised from the very, very earliest days and has been available as information to anyone paying attention to our work, to anyone listening mm. to survivors, um, and sitting in whatever stripe of government because that information has been available to us all. Thank you for that uh, validation, you know, in terms of the survivors and discovery really isn't the right word the validation of words, the validation of testimony, the validation of statements by survivors is very powerful uh, with this horrific evidence that was found. Now, based your, on your work as a commissioner of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, what are your thoughts in regarding the unmarked graves? Do you think still exist out there? And I know there was a documented of 4,100 deaths, I believe, at these schools. Um, can you shed any more light about the who, what, where, when, why, or some of the statistics or numbers, uh, some of the issues that you thought might still be there from your work as a commissioner? Well, I remember, and it was exactly, you know, National Chief, it was exactly six years to the day yesterday um, that we released our calls to action in our summary report. And I remember in my part of our speeches that day, um, I talked about very specifically um, the missing children and the little ones who had not yet been found and the little ones, to use such a crass term, who had not yet been put back together. And what I mean by that is the total disregard with which their little lives and their passing was documented. Uh, we had scraps of information. Uh, we knew of a child uh, 10 years old, or we knew of a girl, no name uh, or age indicated, or little Johnny, no information about a last name or where they came from. Um, some of the information came from um, um, Indian agent records, some from the churches, some from different denominations, some from provincial records. And, and the point is that we initially confirmed in our report 3,200 children that we knew had died while at the schools. Um, and that was from a combination of 
records where children were named and records of children who were unnamed. Almost half of the children uh, listed there had no cause of death. Um, A third of them had uh, no indication of whether they were male or female, and a quarter of them did not have uh, a name of any kind. And so that's what I mean by the scraps of information and the incredible disrespect and disregard with which these little ones, who should have been uh, brought home in ceremony, were dismissed Mm of and literally buried out of sight, out of mind for all this time. We uh, then pushed for and got some work, um, and the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, which we established as part of our mandate, have done the further work and the the kind of drilling down, if you'll forgive the phrase, into their own archival information to try to piece together was was the nine-year-old girl the same person as little Susie, and might that be the same person, and is that part of a name? And the beautiful ceremony that we held coming up to two years ago now in Ottawa, where there was the unveiling of that beautiful commemorative banner by the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, was the compiling of as much detail with names of children as we could muster. And that's where the number then moved up to about 4,200. We also know that, uh, and we reported it, that almost a 1,000 children died within the first year after leaving school. Many of them sent home sick um, and subsequently died. So we, we, we've, we are that far along, but we also knew um, that we had not found all the children by any stretch um, and that there were many still unmarked graves or abandoned grave sites. Uh, we had many survivors talk to us about um, knowing that there were children buried in certain places, in some cases because they'd actually had to help dig the graves and they'd actually had to help participate in burying classmates. Uh, we heard many accounts of children who witnessed horrific beatings and then never saw a child again. And the assumptions made about what became their fate, it you know, ends up being uh, guesswork. We, we know, and, and I, I found you asked me at the beginning what all I was thinking about. I mean, I could barely contain my thoughts. I was kind of doing a fast forward of six and a half years of, of commission work and so many hours and days mm. and months of testimony and hearing individual stories. Uh, one of the ones that came to mind was uh, a man in the Kuwaitan area who uh, had had a child be injured in residential school, sent south, never came home again, and they spent basically the rest of their life in a kind of state of brokenness um, uh, in and around Winnipeg trying to find that missing child. So these mm-hmm. are human tragedies that were not back then. It happened. Gee, that's really terrible. These are These are tragedies that happened and that are continuing to play out in the aftermath consequences that are alive and, and unfortunately still resonating uh, throughout uh, every region of the country. We still see and feel the intergenerational trauma of the residential schools. There's no question about that in our, in, in our communities, in our families, in our territories. Um, you, you started sharing some testimony from some of the things you heard uh, in, your, in your work as a commissioner. Is there Any other testimony that you want to share that sticks out to you in your mind from your work on the TRC, from some of the survivors as it relates to the deaths of First Nations children in residential schools? And, you know, it's always a fine balance between, you know, kind of wanting to force people to look fully and squarely at the most 
abysmal truth of all this and not wanting, on the other hand, to cause further harm and to traumatize. Um, mm-hmm. So I think I would say more generally that there were days where I would say to myself, is there no end to human depravity? Um, have I not yet heard every possible horrible way in which children c- could have been discarded? And there was, uh, I'll just say in, in, in a not good way, a wide range of diversity, but it was uh, some of it clearly was intentional. Uh, I will say, and I think some of this has already been published in any case in ways that people can find elsewhere, but, you know, we did hear of, of children's bones being found in in the foundations of buildings when schools were uh, dismantled. Uh, We heard stories of children, babies being born uh, to to clergy um, and in context of of forced sexual aggressions. Uh, We heard of babies being buried. I can barely talk about this myself. We heard of children uh, in in my my part of the country here, we heard of children being thrown into furnaces. Uh, I mean, it's just beyond Mm -hmm. any imagination of, of, uh, of our, of our desire to think of uh, human decency. And I I always come back to this, uh, not that it's right for anyone, but these were children. These were children and these are children uh, the little ones who've yeah. woken up this week in Kamloops, these are children calling out to all of us now. No, it's uh, we've often said the residential schools was a genocide of First Nations people and uh, their policy of killing the Indian in the child. Uh, and not just and, First uh, Nations, and I know that's the focus for your your cast, but we also do know, of course, Métis and Inuit were, were, Inuit. Uh, were affected by all of this as well. And so it's all the First Peoples of Canada. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all of the First Peoples who were deemed to be not good enough by nature of their birthright and who were in the way for the bigger plans for how the country would evolve. And that's the, that's the honest, ugly truth of it that we have to own up to. So, Marie, we've been, you know, you've done a lot of work and research as a commissioner of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and came out with this fantastic report and calls to action, 94 calls to action. And we can say there's been some movement, uh, but it's been slow, you know, in terms of the implementation of those 94 calls to action. And even this past week, you know, with the uh, validation of the 215 graves uh, that have been found, these young people, these beautiful young children have been found. Um, and government announced $27 million to help do the research and investigation. Um, we, people say, is that enough? And why is it taking so long? What are the challenges? What are the roadblocks? And how can we move this along quicker in your mind? Well, I I do acknowledge, uh, of course, that people who are in government, I mean, most people enter into politics with good intentions and, and goodwill. I think the machinery of government sometimes takes over and the way decisions get made can be very slow and cumbersome. But I also think we work and function in a system where there is built-in um, uh Opposition. There's built-in adversaries. Uh, things become politicized, and you know the apology that was made 13 years ago by every single political party in the House of Commons, where every single one uh, expressed tremendous regret and commitment to work together going forward. Um, that that spirit of um, collaboration and reconciliation as a non-partisan issue. 
that gets lost. That gets lost when people slide into partisan stances that can slow things down. You think about the UN declaration, which was close to a pass under a previous um, opportunity in government and, and then ended up uh, falling apart along partisan lines. And I, I think that we cannot allow ourselves, if we truly believe what we're saying about wanting to make things right, that we can't allow ourselves to slide into that on these issues. So that's one thing. The second thing is, I, I you know, I really find myself reflecting a lot uh, about the past year that we've all lived through and the many lessons and many of them valuable from the COVID experience. And one of those is we have proven to ourselves as a country, and in fact, we've, we've, we've proven ourselves to be stellar in this regard, to be able to say whatever it costs, whatever we have to do, to make things right, that's what we're going to do. CERB was a perfect example of that, and it was out the door in two weeks' time. It's not to say that there aren't mistakes made along the way, and that is part of the risk, of course. Um, but if you feel that something truly is an emergency, that it truly is urgent, um, that it truly is an issue that is of fundamental importance to the well-being of your country's reputation and the well-being of its citizens, then you do that. And so I think on the money that has been announced, it's the way we do things. We have budget allocations and we say, here's how much money there is. I think the bigger question is, do we have a good sense of how big is the job? Have we done the work that we need to say, how many um, unmarked graves are we talking about? Are we going to those communities where the schools were and asking the expert survivors in an urgent manner, because we are losing their expertise as they leave us. Mm -hmm. And uh, people who have memory of where they were and, and who was, was with them and where children may be buried, we need that to be brought forward urgently um, and not to be um, so overly cautious that we're afraid to do anything. I think find the children, of course, be respectful of local communities and the necessary protocols for moving forward. Um, but not um, stand back and limit ourselves by a bottom line budget item and, and a sense that we have an entire political cycle uh, to accomplish some of these things. They are urgent and they need urgent attention. And I welcome, by yeah. the way, outrage that I've heard right across the country because it is proper and it is deserved and we should all be crying for these little ones. There's no question. I think, uh, as we said before, like Cam Loops is... is uh, one of 130 schools, 130 plus schools that operated residential schools across Canada. And uh, I've been getting calls and texts and messages from leaders and chiefs that say, we need to investigate here. We need to get this research done here. We need to get that ground penetrating radar technology here as soon as possible. And uh, I know uh, we mentioned that figure of $27 million that's there to help communities. Um, it's a start for sure. But again, process for these chiefs and leaders and families and survivors to get this technology out uh, is very important. And I think even you mentioned the, the calls to action 71 to 75, um, you know, and the, uh, the words to uh, investigate, maintain, commemorate and honor these sites and these, these little ones that, have, that w will be found. Um, do you have thoughts in terms of this technology and what kind of resources uh, should be utilized in terms of this uh, um discovery process or investigative process? I, you know, I don't presume any kind of expertise on that issue. And I, and I think truthfully, one of the, one of the, one of the 
I guess, happy truths in all of this is that we have not until now been had to be expert in how do we identify missing bodies. That's something that we've allowed to be necessary in other countries, um, in other parts of the world where terrible things happen. Well, now the mirror is right back on ourselves as Canada, and we need we know that this kind of expertise exists. I'm not the one who knows exactly where it is or what's needed, uh, but we should certainly not uh, park behind um, an argument for Indigenous-led on some assumption that that expertise exists in all the communities across the country, because it certainly doesn't. So we need to bring together proper technical expertise, proper traditional knowledge expertise and wisdom and cultural protocols so that uh, work can can begin um, quickly while we still have um, the knowledge of residential school survivors um, in our midst. Um, So I I think there's an urgency to this. I think, too, that there are other things that we can do and we need to ratchet them up. And I think about 82, which is uh, the call for a national monument for uh, residential school survivors, because part of the purpose of that, in part, as we have in Ottawa already the tomb of the unknown soldier, knowing that one of the consequences of tragic circumstances is that not everybody gets found, not everybody gets identified, not everybody gets brought home. That monument, among other things, uh, needs to serve as the tomb of the unknown child and for other commemorative purposes to keep us all as a country alert to this uh, history um, and um, and and um, mm. and and determined for the other related and interwoven work, um, it's really time to think about all the educational calls to action and what these things all add up to, rather than trying to go at the calls to action kind of in some kind of sequential way. Um, they are so many of them interrelated, uh, but we should have well, criteria for determining where the urgency is and going there first. Good comment on that because again, uh, number eighty-two is the uh, TRC calls to to action regarding the national monument, the tomb unknown child. Very fitting. This government will will cease to sit, they rise at the end of June, approximately. And there's some um, uh, three very important bills that we're trying to push for pieces of legislation. Um, Bill C five, of course, which is the National Day of Reconciliation, September thirtieth, which has got unanimous supports in the Senate now. Uh, Bill C-8 deals with the oath of office or oath of allegiance when uh, when you're being so- – citizenship, I guess, is the right word. Uh, and then C-15, the UN Declaration Bill. And so we're trying to get all of these important pieces of legislation done in time. And they're all related to the residential school in some way, shape, or form. C-5, uh, you know, September 30th will be the day of uh, reconciliation uh, in light of uh, Orange Shirt Day. And uh, those bills are going to move forward. But – Number 82, the National Monument is another work that we want to get done, you know, in terms of National Monument. But this one, number 58, TRC calls to action number 58, the Papal Apology. And the Kamloops School was administered by a Catholic order called the Missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate. And so the Catholic Church, uh, I think that it's about 60 to 70 percent of case of administration of the residential schools, uh, they ran uh, as a Catholic Church administered the residential schools in Canada. Uh, but they have yet to make the formal apology from the Catholic Church. Um, what are your thoughts on that and process? And what does that mean for healing and reconciliation with survivors for that to happen? Because that's TRC calls to action number 58, the papal apology. 
It was actually quite a controversial uh, call to action because many residential school survivors, um, um, after their residential school experiences, um, distanced themselves and isolated themselves from the church. And uh, as some people said, I'll never set foot in the church again. But that was not everyone's experience. And for uh, many survivors, and we heard it in every region of the country, we included this call to action because survivors asked for it. They said, the United Church has apologized, and we heard it decades ago. The Anglican Church has apologized. The Presbyterian Church has apologized. But the Pope has never come to Canada to apologize on behalf of the Catholic Church. And of course, it's complicated because there are many entities within the Catholic Church and various entities operated various uh, residential schools and sometimes more than one entity involved in the same school. But the Oblates that you've just referred to, that was the biggest single group that uh, operated residential schools. I think it is extremely important. And many people have told us that apology is important to their own healing and their own ability to move forward. It's not the only thing. None of these calls to action function in isolation or are the answer in and of themselves. But I think that when you have um, institutions that are in charge of something and the people at the top of those institutions will not take it upon themselves, whether they were the one in power at the time, I mean, it's important what I referred to earlier that every single political party in Canada apologized. Uh, none of them were sitting at the time that the schools were operating, but they realized that they inherited that responsibility on behalf of the people they represented. That's the case of, of the Pope. And I think it's hugely important. Um, and it's a very influential institution in the world. And we know that this is not the only place in the world uh, where things happened under church auspices where there was a lack of supervision and a, and a lack of proper care and regard. And it needs redress and that needs to start with uh, acknowledgement and acknowledgement of the truth of it um, so that people can move on. There's also work probably that needs to be done because where are the missing documents and how many of those may in fact be mm -hmm. sitting in the archives in the Vatican? We don't know that, but we know that there are some missing, some have been destroyed, some got lost in fires, um, some may have been unintentionally destroyed, um, and um, but we know that um, that there are some that are missing that have been tucked away or made not available. And we spend an awful lot of our time as a commission going back to court, forcing people to release documents that they did not willingly release. Uh, and the Catholic Church um, and certain sectors of the federal government were were big parts of the resistance. Um, and that so I think that there's an accountability that is due, and especially to remember, Chief. This TRC came about because of a court case. It's not, it wasn't a political gesture on the part of the government to say, hey, we feel really badly, let's have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It came about because survivors of the schools stepped forward with their courage and their limited resources and tackled the two biggest mm -hmm. institutions in the country, the government of Canada and the national churches and said what happened to us as children was not right. And it was the court that ordered the obligation to mount um, and conduct a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And it was done begrudgingly uh, by those who resisted having a TRC. So when you think about our calls to action, that TRC, which came from a court order, what then is both the legal and the moral expectation of people, of mm -hmm. reasonable people, 
that there will be implementation of such calls to action. And that doesn't let anybody off the hook, and it surely doesn't let the Catholic Church off the hook. No, it's a strong statement, and I think uh, to our listeners and to um, the people following this TRC implementation and the, this uh, validation, disco- I won't even use the word discovery, the validation of, of, of at, at, at Kelowna, uh, but the church is to push and still be called on the Catholic Church for the uh, papal apology, and the opening up and release of information and records and documents to assist with any research and investigation going forward. Those are the two things still being asked of the Roman Catholic Church. And, and uh, you're quite correct in saying that there's a legal and moral obligation here. And there may be a financial expectation that's legitimate as well. For one thing, monies that may not yet have been dispersed from the settlement, but also new monies that may be necessary. I imagine the technical work we talked about of these uh, deep ra- radar screening for finding other children, uh, there's got to be a cost associated with that. And that cannot be the reason not to proceed. I don't ever want to hear that we can't afford to do that. Mm-hmm. No, strong comments, good comments. Now, Marie, with um, everything that's going on and, and with your experience and all the work you've done and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and and then this heavy load, and, and it is heavy. I think there's a, a, a growing feeling of heaviness across Canada and the world because the world is watching this as well. 215 bodies of children, children. Um, and there is a heaviness. Uh, but in light of all the challenges, we always try on this podcast to try to leave our listeners with some sort of hope, some sort of hope for the future. And I'd really be interested in next, to hear your comments about going forward, next steps, Well, I think um, we are nursing a tremendous sense of outrage, and I always think that that's a positive thing. I know that um, the fact that it is children who are speaking now, these little ones who have been buried, have been unearthed in a way that has allowed them to speak to us. We are beginning to hear them. Um, I know that everyone has been reaching out to support each other. I've been well supported. I've tried to support others. Um, That outreach is in itself um, life-giving. And the the things that we have been able to do by way of gesture uh, to both small and large, both individual and communal, uh, I think these are things that, uh, um, that they not only bring comfort in the moment, but they bring an imperative because they are so so visible. Um, and I, I'll, I'll just share one little thing, which is to talk about my own grandchildren. And, you know, one of the things that I felt compelled to do, um, I've had, I've had, I'll just share with you very honestly, I've had little ones visiting me throughout my time as a commissioner. And perhaps because I'm, I'm the mom of the group. I, I, I perhaps because of the of the responsibility I was given with the Shishigun, um, but I've had constant visitors, and I um, I wanted my grandchildren to understand what had happened, but for them to feel empowered by this time, and for them to feel um, that they were equipped to enter into their own responsibilities going forward. And, and we have members of our own extended family who are, um, their names at least are partially marked uh, on a tombstone that is about three hours away from here. Um, and 
my grandchildren have gone there with us. They have each been given the responsibility of knowing those names and, and holding on. Each one was given one of those names that's their responsibility to remember. And uh, to know that they have a job to hold these stories and to keep them um, alive for other people who may not yet know. And that may be long after we're gone. And we also mm. um, spent time making sacred objects that we could um, use in a good way here. And uh, the children were taught um, a drum song that they needed to know. And, and we're working on um, a family prayer that will be special to this time in this place. So those are small gestures, but ways of trying to do something to keep ourselves whole and to keep ourselves hopeful and to keep ourselves mm. connected as family at a time where, apart from these little children, this is about enormous family disruption. So I think whatever ways we can find to hold us back together as family, both in bloodlines but in societal ways, um, is extremely important. We need to step up as citizens um, and expect mm. of our elected leaders of all uh, kinds that they will do what we expect them to do, which is the right thing that we will demand of our country that we live up to the reputation that we espouse for ourselves internationally and that we allow ourselves to be vulnerable enough to be looked at by the outside world, um, to look at something that is not a dark chapter, but rather a human rights atrocity in our own midst, and that we be, mm -hmm. we be courageous and humble and vulnerable enough to look at that honestly and to do what's right to move forward. So I have hope in all those things. I've met good people from every corner of this country. And, and I know that we are being called together as a kind of clarion call by um, these little children. Uh, and I hold yeah. to that hope. Um, you can't believe that any that change is possible if you don't believe in a core goodness of people. And, and, I, and I do. And I continue to. Powerful statements, Marie. The little ones are speaking to us and we are starting to listen and we are starting to hear and uh, truth before reconciliation. This is the truth. May I just say, National Chief, I, I, I want to say one last thing and maybe I can just add it under the headline of, of hope. You know, what, what has given me hope through all of this and what continues to give me hope is um, visionary leadership. And I want to say, as you leave your term of office, I want to say my tremendous appreciation to you, Masi Cho, for the leadership that you have shown in a sustained way on all of these issues related to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And may I also say on a very personal note, um, the tremendous personal honor that you gave me and my two commissioner colleagues in blanketing us at the Chief's Assembly. And I treasure that moment. I treasure that memory and I treasure that gifted blanket. I thank you so very much for that. And we are all family. Thank you so much. And um, a big Masicho to you, your family, for the work you've done for all of our people across Canada on this Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And a big Masicho, a big thank you for coming on the Akamema podcast and for your message of hope for all of our people. And we are all connected. We are all related. We are all family. It's a powerful statement to close on. Masi, thank you. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamemet podcast. 
If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. <laughs>